1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy or dishonest for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right. Good afternoon, you guys. Dude, you, this is, they say this is supposed to be like uh, the least, like the right, Sunday right after Thanksgiving, like the least attended church service. Um, but you guys did good. Yeah. Uh, way to go, team. Awesome. <laughs> um, Hey, so uh, last week we talked, uh, uh, we looked at the calling and the character uh, traits of, of leaders uh, who serve as, as pastor and elders. Uh, today we're going to continue looking at leadership by seeing what the Bible has to say about deacons. Um, now before we get into the text, let me pray for us uh, and then we'll go ahead and get started, all right? Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for my brothers and sisters here, uh, for my friends. Um, we pray um, for um, those of us who are still uh, out because uh, of COVID or the flu or, or what have you, and uh, just pray, Lord, uh, in Jesus' name, that you would just heal them. Heal them swiftly, God. Uh, please be with us, Lord. Would you guide my words? Would you feed us and nourish us with your scriptures? Uh, more than anything, God, we just ask that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, all right. So here's the thing about deacons, all right? So as a newer church, uh, we do not have official deacons installed yet, all right? We are going to next year, right? Some of you we've already started that conversation with. Uh, we're going to have some deacons next year, but you need to know, all of us need to know what the Bible says about deacons, right? Uh, because we're going to have deacons, it's better that you know now than later so that, one, you can know God's blueprints uh, for a healthy church and where deacons fit into that, right? Uh, that's our sort of subtitle for this series through 1 Timothy, Blueprints for the Household of God. And the idea is that uh, just like you want to have order in a normal household uh, with a father and a mother and the children, the way they relate to one another, God uh, has spoken on how he wants order to happen in his church between elders and deacons and church members, all right? Uh, so you want to know God's blueprints for a healthy church and where deacons fit into that. You also want to know what God requires, of what the Bible calls deacons so that you know how to pray for them, how to support them. Uh, and we don't have, while we don't have official deacon titles yet, there are people in our church who are currently serving in deacon type roles, uh, like who are your home group leaders, uh, Kelly, who's been overseeing family ministries, uh, uh, you know, Oscar and Danny, who've been collaborating on KX communities, uh, Matt, who's been overseeing like setup and teardown and just, uh, you know, a whole host. I mean, I mean, I can't even just go down the, the list. It's so exhaustive just how many people uh, have poured into to show up and to lead in this way. Uh, but the idea here, just like last week, is that leadership is important. Healthy leadership is essential. And just like a healthy organization can't exist without healthy leadership, a healthy church can't exist without healthy gospel-shaped leadership. Last week, we talked about how elders are servant leaders. This week, when we're looking at deacons, we can look at deacons as lead 
servants, as lead servants, all right? Uh, so here's our, our, our main idea, is that God calls deacons to be lead servants who take initiative for the benefit of others and who assume glad responsibility in an area of need, in an area of specific need. So the passages that we'll look at will exemplify what we just read right here, okay? Um, it's, it's a lot to get through, so let's go ahead and get started with point number one, where we look at the responsibilities of deacons. The responsibilities of deacons. Now, before we get into 1 Timothy chapter 3, I do want us to look at a couple other places for context. I think this is important because a, a lot of churches today uh, don't... don't have what we call deacons, right? They may have been around for several years. Uh, they, don't, they don't have deacons. They don't practice what the Bible uh, says about uh, deacons. And so uh, let's, let's just kind of break down what, what is a deacon? What are the responsibilities of deacons? So now, uh, to begin that conversation, I want us to look at John chapter 13. Uh, you don't need to turn there. We're just going to fly through this. But in John 13, we read about the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem, uh, and that journey was a long one. It was a dusty one because there's no paved roads back then. They didn't have shoes back then the way that we do now, right? There were no sneakerheads back then. Everyone wore sandals. And when I say sandals, I'm not saying like comfy Birkenstock sandals. I'm talking like a slab of leather with some straps tied on, right? And so it was customary, you may have heard in that day, that when you walk into a home for a meal, there's a servant or slave type of person who would get down on the knee with a basin of water and a towel around his waist, and he would, he would wash the feet of the guests that arrived after traveling a long, dusty journey. And so what we see in John 13 is that Jesus is gathering for his final meal, for the Last Supper, with his closest friends. This is the night before he was arrested, before he was accused and dragged to the cross, and at some point, Jesus has this towel wrapped around his waist. He got on his knees, and he starts washing his disciples' feet. I mean, this is like the gloomiest day of his life. He knows what's right around the corner. He knows what's about to happen, and he starts washing his disciples' feet. He starts serving them in the lowliest of ways, and this shocked them totally shocked them. It blew their minds. Peter was so thrown off that he says, Jesus, what are you doing? He's like, what are you doing? You can't touch me like that. You're, you're our teacher. You're our Lord. You're our master. We follow you around. Like, you can't do this for us. He's like, let me do this for you. And yet there's Jesus, not, not just their teacher, but their Lord and their master, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ones who made the angels sing at his birth, who makes demons tremble when he approaches them. And here, this Jesus, this master, he serves his followers. He serves his disciples in pure love. And when he's done serving them, at the end of John 13, we says it, it says that Jesus looked at his disciples and he says to them, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. By this world, or by, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples in the way that you love one another. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, now what I just did for you, I want you to go and do likewise. I know I'm not too good to do it, and so you're definitely not too good to do it. 
He was saying that in the same way that he served them throughout his life and his ministry, the way that he symbolically served them that night by washing their feet, the way that he would serve them on the cross soon enough by dying in their place for their sins, all of this would be an example to them on how they should love one another and serve one another. Now, you might be wondering, what the heck does this have to do with deacons and leadership? It has everything to do with deacons. Because the God of the scriptures invented deacons to embody Jesus' example of servanthood. That's what a deacon is called to do, is to embody the example of Jesus in the way that he serves others. God raises up deacons to love and serve local congregations to meet very specific practical needs. One other place before we go to 1 Timothy, let me show you how this plays out in Acts chapter 6. This is the first place that deacons show up in the scriptures, all right? In Acts 6, you got the church in Jerusalem. Uh, things are going bananas. The gospel is going forth. The church is growing, uh, and the needs are increasing. And it says there in Acts 6 verse 1, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number... There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews against the Hebraic or Hebrew-speaking Jews that their widows were being, or that their own widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The 12, that's the 12 apostles, summoned the whole company of the disciples. That means all the other followers of Jesus. And they said, hey, look, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. And so they're saying, hey, look, our job as the apostles, as the elders and pastors of this church, uh, has been to preach the word and to, to minister to people. And he says, it's not good for us to give that up in order to go around serving at each table. And so he says, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Verse 6, they, and they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So this is where the office of the deacon is, is first introduced to us in Acts chapter 6. There's a few things that we see here uh, as far as the responsibility of deacons. We already saw from John 13 that part of the responsibility of deacons is to embody Jesus' example of servanthood. But here we also see how deacons are to serve uh, and meet specific needs. Right? Deacons serve to meet specific needs. Good things we see in Acts chapter 6 are happening in the Jerusalem church. Right, The church has grown a bit. Uh, and like other early Christians, they had a huge heart for orphans and widows. Which, by the way, orphans and widows were shunned by the culture uh, in that region of that time. And so, uh, be, but because of that, because the church was growing and because they, they had this uh, continued ministry to widows and orphans, one of the things that ended up happening is this problem arose. There were some Jewish Christian widows who spoke Hebrew, and there were others who spoke Greek. And the Greek speakers thought that the Hebrew speakers we're getting maybe a little bit more attention. I mean, after all, they're in Jerusalem, right? So, so the, the Jewish-speaking, the Hebrew-speaking uh, widows are, um, are sort of natives of that area. And so the other people are, are kind of feeling like they're getting left out. And so they speak up. And what the apostles and elders do is they don't say, 
hey, man, we got to do our thing. We got to do our thing. So let's just kind of forget about your needs. Let's forget about the ministry to the widows uh, because we can't handle that right now, right? Nor do they say, hey, that ministry is so important that we're going to stop studying our Bibles and teaching and praying and discipling leaders. We're going to stop doing that stuff so we can make sure that these needs are met. No, instead, what they do is they say, hey, look, we're going to appoint deacons to do this work. Now, the Greek word for deacon is diakonos, diakonos, which literally means servant. That's what deacons do. They're lead servants. They're the first ones who are willing to serve, who gladly assume responsibility in a specific area of need. We also see that deacons take initiative in supporting the ministry of the word. Deacons take initiative in supporting the ministry of the word. We see that the apostles felt this tension, right? We see that in the text. The apostles, they, they feel this tension that's pulling them away from their primary pastoral responsibilities. Specifically here, they mention the ministry of prayer and the ministry of proclaiming the word right there in verse 4. And because of that, the mission of the church began to suffer, so deacons were appointed to free up the elders to focus on word and prayer. Now, what is so significant with word and prayer? Man, the word is how souls are saved. The word is how churches are sanctified, how they grow in depth. In prayer, that's where the demonic is, is battled. In prayer, that's how churches are strengthened and fortified. In prayer, that's how the kingdom of God advances. That's how shackles are broken. So deacons are a gift from God to a local church. They help the elders focus on those primary responsibilities of the word and prayer. Deacons also lead so that others can serve. Deacons lead so that others can serve. All right, so these seven dudes were not enough to handle the distribution problem in the Jerusalem church, right? The church had like blown up, right? So they would organize others to make sure that that work got done. The idea is this, every single one of us, the Bible says, in a number of places throughout the New Testament, every single one of us as Christians are called to serve, to use the gifts that God has given us to serve the body of Christ. Deacons, they just take initiative in that. They take the lead so that the church can love in both word and deed, so that the word and prayer can go forth, but also the practical needs could be met by those in great need. We also see in their responsibilities that deacons preserve gospel unity in the church. Deacons are given by God to help preserve gospel unity. As Christians began to complain and distrust one another in the Jerusalem church, spiritual disunity begins to grow. And so the deacons kind of serve as like these, these shock absorbers, right? They help ease that tension and promote unity in the church. They embody Jesus' heart of servanthood in a way that helped the whole congregation preserve its unity and, and love each other well. All right? So that's the responsibilities of deacons. Now let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we begin to look at the reputation of deacons. The reputation of deacons. As lead servants, deacons set the tone for other members in Christ-like character. Look at the first two verses of our text, verses 8 and 9. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
Let's, let's unpack each of those. It says first, deacons likewise must be dignified. Now, some translators will say deacons should be worthy of, of respect. That's what it means to be dignified, to be worthy of respect. It means that you sort of, you, you, you carry yourself in a certain way with the way that you, way that you act, the way that you, you talk, the way that you sort of present yourself to the world. You do it in a way uh, that is with, with dignity and respectable. The way that you act is respectable. The, the language that you use, the way you speak is respectable. The way you present yourself is respectable. Now, to be clear, when I say respectable, I'm not saying that you need to be like all stuffy and serious, right? Like it means that generally speaking, there's this air about you where, where people around you tend to respect you. Not everyone will, but many will. Now, you may have heard us say about our church culture here at King's Cross that we want to be a people who take God and his word seriously, uh, but we don't want to take ourselves too seriously, right? Um, like, we, we, we like that about us, right? With some, some Christians take themselves too seriously. We don't, we don't want to be like that, right? But we do want to take God and his word seriously. That's what a deacon should be like. You don't take yourself too seriously, but you do take the Lord and his word seriously. I've got a good friend who, years and years ago, um, uh, when we first met, uh, he, he did not like me. He was not a fan of me, all right? Um, and this isn't just, like, how I felt about the situation. Like, he eventually, like, admitted that uh, to me. Uh, and we, we met through a mutual friend who, who introduced me to this guy as, as, as an old friend from church, right? Which kind of made this guy go like, oh, right? And then he later finds out that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, that I serve in ministry, which is like double, uh, right, for him. And so he, this guy, he, like, he would make the most vile jokes, make fun of his wife all the time. He would talk about other women. Uh, he, would, he would make fun of, of what do you call do-gooders, all to try and like, get a rise out of me. All right. This went on for like months and months and months. And in, in all, all those situations, like I wouldn't laugh in those moments. I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't engage. Uh, you know, I wouldn't take the bait. Um, but I also didn't like shake my head at him and like wag my finger either. Uh, I listened. I spent time with him. And I chuckled whenever it was appropriate, but then I knew how to, you know, respectfully sort of exit the conversation uh, whenever I had to. And this continued on for months until he found himself in a place where, uh, like, his marriage was on the rocks and his job was no longer satisfying to him. He'd, he'd still make all these jokes, these big jokes, when the boys were all around. But when it was just me and him, we started having these deep conversations about life and joy and faith and a difference that Jesus makes uh, for me. And what happened, I don't say this to like pat myself on, on the back, but just as evidence of God's grace at work in this situation, like I earned his respect over months by not compromising on my principles in a way that was... Uh, not condemning against him, but, um, but was dignified in a way that he grew to respect. You see, the idea is that when you are in a position of leadership, there's a spotlight 
on how you represent the faith. There's a spotlight on how you, you represent what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It just means that to a good degree, you're seen as respectable, as a person of integrity. You probably don't use the same language you used to. You don't talk trash on your spouse that maybe the way you used to. Uh, you, don't, you don't talk behind other people's backs the way you used to. You're not engaged in the same foolishness that you used to. Which, by the way, these things should be true of you before you become a deacon, right? Being a deacon does not make you respectable. No, it's you are already respectable, and therefore, because of that, you're qualified to serve Jesus and his church as a deacon. What the leadership role does is not make you grow in character. What the leadership role does is it magnifies the character that you've already got, whether it's, 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 it's for good or for worse. You see, some organizations, they'll choose leaders based on uh, who they want the person to be, right? They'll say like, hey, man, as long as I get the job done, if they're popular, if they're magnetic, if they get the numbers, I mean, yeah, they might be rough around the edges and they might have problems at home, but like, hey, we can work with that. We can work with that. But look, that's backwards to how things should operate in the household of God. That's backwards to how the Bible talks about biblical leadership. The Bible says, if you're, if you're a chump, right, it's my paraphrase, if you're a chump, which is basically a foolish person, you're being in leadership will just magnify your chumpiness, right? Because you now have a platform to spread your foolishness. And when you look at a leader, when you look at a leader now, that, that, that means the question you should be asking is, hey, are they worthy of respect? If you aspire to be a leader, if you aspire to be a deacon, the question you should be asking is, am I worthy of respect? And how has that, how has evidence of that shown up in my relationships? The verse continues. It says a deacon must also not be double-tongued. He says he is not double-tongued. That can also be translated as insincere speech. In other words, this is somebody who says one thing but does another. Our modern word for that is hypocrite. And if you're hypocritical, you're going to be an unstable and untrustworthy leader. James 1 says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A lot of times, the hypocrite is someone who, who, who says certain things, not always for nefarious reasons, but sometimes it's like they just want people to like them. So when your actions don't mask, match your words, instead of, like, instead of apologizing and repenting, you just you try and fix things. You do image management. This is like the guy who says, yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't get that email. I didn't get that email. I didn't hear about that, that deadline. Even though he did get it, he just forgot to get it done, and he doesn't want you to know that he forgot to get it done. This is the woman that says to another leader, hey, look, I'm with you, and I'm for you, and I will follow you, and I will cheer you on, but then behind their back, you just complain about that person. That's what it means to be double-tongued. Being one-tongued is someone who says what they mean, who's consistent with what they say and who they are and what they do. And they say what they mean with wisdom and grace. They say, hey, look, this is who I am. I feel this way and I want to talk to you about it. 
They say, hey, look, this is what I did. I know I messed up. I screwed up. I'm going to deal with the consequences. You don't lie your way out of a situation just in order to, in order to save face. Doing that just reveals that you practically love your calling more than you do your Christ. The hot word for this right now is authenticity. Authenticity, true authenticity, reflects the character of Jesus. Jesus never threw shade behind someone's back. Jesus also did not cover or shade the truth, mislead others. He was sincere in all that he said, sincere in all that he did, in the way that he dealt with people, from his encouragement of them to revealing their desperate need of grace because of their sin. The question to ask here is, when you're thinking about a deacon or a leader, you're asking, hey, does this person keep their word? Do they speak with sincerity, with authenticity? He continues and he says that a deacon must be not addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. I won't belabor this because we talked about this last week when we, we looked at the qualifications of elders. But a leader needs to have no area of their life that is out of control. Whether it's your relationship with alcohol, your relationship with food, your relationship with media and entertainment, no area of your life that is out of control. If you lose control in one area of your life, you'll lose control in other areas as well. Right? We believe that if you're going to drink, which you can do, you should drink in moderation. The key word there is moderation. I remember the first time, man, I, I sat like years ago, because I grew up, uh, I, I, got, I came to faith in college at like a, a large Southern Baptist church where you had to like sign this contract and say, we're going to abstain from like all of these things, right? And so, man, I remember the first time I went to this conference uh, and sat with like a bunch of reform dudes who were super humble, loved the Bible, studied theology more than anyone else I'd ever met in like my Christian life. And I was sitting with a bunch of reform dudes at a, at a conference and, and they're like passing around cigars and sipping on whiskey, and I'm like, we can do that? Like, that's a thing? Look, you can enjoy gifts like this to the glory of God. But what Paul's talking about is somebody who's addicted to the point of excess, who's addicted to the point to where they're controlled by it, to where this thing has become their functional savior rather than the Lord Jesus, to where you functionally trust in wine more than you do in him. That leads to disaster. I mean, man, stories of addiction, you see here that leads to bad judgment. It leads to lying. It leads to just unraveling of your entire life. He says also that deacons should be not greedy for dishonest gain. In other words, you don't use the church for your own gain. You don't use the church for financial or for materialistic gain. You see, some guys uh, and girls, all they, what they want is to receive all the benefits of leadership, but pay none of the costs. And so they don't give. They're unwilling to serve in areas that they consider beneath them. They only do things that they find fun or that they think will propel them forward in what they feel called to do, right? Deacons need to be motivated by love of people, not love of their own image. 
And so they should also be generous givers. And to be clear, at this church, we do not and will not ever show partiality or favoritism to big givers, all right? The Bible's clear that leaders in the church are not to do that. They're not to show partiality in those kinds of ways, right? Or in any way. Uh, I once served at a church that let like one of the biggest donors teach Bible classes, even though behind closed doors, they would talk about how he was, how he was highly unqualified to do so. That's never going to happen here at this church. But the Bible is also clear that if someone is to serve as a deacon, he needs to be giving more than just leftovers uh, to the mission of the church. It's more the principle of what rules that deacon's heart. Is it the approval of men or the approval of God? Is it the comforts of this world or is it the eternal rewards of the kingdom? Verse 9 says that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You can't have character and lack doctrine. Your doctrine, your knowledge of the Bible and of the faith is actually what's going to shape your character. The mystery of the faith there, when it says that phrase, mystery of the faith, those are the things that are the fundamental truths of the Christian faith that have been passed down from Jesus to the apostles, to the early church fathers, to the theologians throughout history, all the way down to today, from generation to generation to generation. Now, why is the Christian faith summarized as the mystery of faith? Why is it called a mystery? It's because of how... They've understood the whole of the scriptures, how the Old Testament was the mystery of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ concealed, right? There's little hints about it in the Old Testament, but it was never made explicit, right? There were hints about it. It was the Old Testament was the promise of the Messiah was, was, was told, but the nature of it was concealed. And in the New Testament, that's revealed, The Old Testament, it was concealed. The New Testament, it was revealed. They called that a mystery because it was mysterious in the Old Testament but became a reality in the New Covenant. We see examples of this, of deacons that are just like beast mode theologians throughout church history. You got Stephen, the first martyr of the faith uh, in the first few chapters of Acts. He, he's, he's the guy that we, we read about in Acts 6, right? They chose Stephen, he's named first, and then all these other guys, right? That guy Stephen would end up standing up uh, before a whole group of Pharisees who are, who are uh, uh, engaged in false teaching, and he confronts them, and he preaches this incredible sermon and gets martyred because of it. Athanasius, African deacon, uh, one of the early church fathers, uh, they, they, uh, um, they sort of dubbed his name the Black Dwarf because he was really, really short, right? It's not my nickname for him. That's what they called him in church history, right? But he was a deacon who refuted the Arian heresy. Uh, I mean, we have an entire creed named after him, the Athanasian Creed, right? There was this Arian heresy. There was this guy named Arius who was going around teaching that Jesus was not the eternal son, that he was created. Uh, and and, and uh, um, Athanasius uh, helped refute uh, Arian heresy uh, at, at, at the councils, at the early councils. I mean, the dude wasn't even an elder. He wasn't even a pastor. He was a deacon. 
You see, you don't need a theology degree to be a leader in the church of this caliber, but you do need to know a good degree of basic theology. So if you're the kind of person who like sort of checks out when theology talk starts happening, uh, hey, maybe you should not be in church leadership. Right? I mean, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be plugged into the church. It doesn't mean that you can't use your gifts and, and serve as, as a member. But hey, like maybe you're not called to this level of church leadership of a deacon. If you're easily swayed by cultural hot topics, by whatever the bestsellers, nonfiction bestsellers of the time are saying, you probably should not be serving in church leadership at that capacity. He says you got to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, it's not enough to know what's true, but a deacon must also have a clear conscience with how what he knows to be true impacts the life that he lives. <coughs> Excuse me. A person with a clear conscience is a person who lives with integrity and with courage. They don't need to know everything that there is to know, but you do need to have the essentials down. So that means a deacon, like if there's any gaps in your faith, you try and settle those gaps. You're hungry to learn. You're not wasting time doom scrolling the internet. You create space in your schedule for growing in the knowledge of the faith. You're not just reading like the current Christian like top sellers. You're reading old books that have stood the test of time too. You're studying those old catechisms and confessions. And you know where to find good resources, right? Hey, look, we're passionate about that at this church. Right? We want to equip you with good resources. Right? We've got uh, a number of, of hand-picked resources on our back table, at our connect table. Some books out there on top. Uh, if you don't see a topic that you're interested in, you see if there's some, in, you know, ask the person at our connect table if you can see some of the books down below. Right? We've made them super cheap, affordable for you. If you don't have the money for that, if you don't have the few bucks uh, to, to take that book home with you, we'll just give it to you, our gift to you. Tons of great websites like the Gospel Coalition, uh, Core Christianity, uh, White Horse Inn, uh, Doctrine and Devotion, podcasts like that, Knowing Faith, a whole host of list of resources. We've got a, a, a tab um, on our church website's menu uh, where if you go over resources, uh, there's a list of recommended resources, all curated for you by topic, whether it's uh, marriage, relationships, dating, uh, parenting, uh, a whole host of things, uh, and, and uh, basic theology. Deep theology, we've got categories for that. Uh, there's books and resources and, and, and Spotify playlists, music albums, all these kinds of things to help you grow in your knowledge of the faith. And more than anything, we would just love to sit down with you uh, and help you walk through some of these resources and grow in your faith. I digress. Verse number 10. He says that deacons must... Be tested first. He says, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, the deacon role is important because deacons set the pace for other church members. They're the lead servants, right? If you want to know what it looks like to persist with a church, if you want to know what it looks like to serve in the church, you look as de at deacons as the ones who set the pace for that. And look, it takes time to test someone in that level of faithfulness. Deacon work is often thankless work. It often goes unappreciated. And so you've got to take some time 
to consider, hey, look, can this leader handle that? Can they handle that kind of difficulty? Can they handle what at times might feel like some pressure? Do they know when to pull back and to when to rest? Or is this the kind of person that after a while, they just grow to grumble and complain and stir up disunity like what was happening in Acts 6? When he says that they must prove themselves blameless, that does not mean, again, that they might need to be perfect, but that deacons take responsibility whenever they do fail in leadership and they correct the course. You guys remember that book by Jocko Willink, uh, Extreme Ownership? He opens up uh, the story of that book by talking about uh, this, this, uh, uh, this campaign that uh, him and his SEAL team was on, right? Everything went wrong. It was what they call blue on blue, friendly fire. Uh, some, some friendlies, were, they were shooting at each other, right? Um, almost killed each other, uh, killed uh, one of their allies. And everything was just like, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And every, they, they, they go back to the base and they gather in a room and, and usually what happens in situations like this is everybody's pointing fingers at one another because uh, when, when the commander comes in, when the presiding general comes in, somebody needs to take the blame. And so everyone normally points fingers at each other just saying, like, you know, it was your fault or you guys did this or it was your team, right? So that it's all settled whose fault it is by the time that they come in. And Jocko, who's one of the officers in charge of that, that operation, uh, their, their whole team is meeting with the officers uh, who flew in to kind of assess the situation and figure out where to pass blame, right? And they're like on a mission. They're like, somebody's going down for this. Jocko Willen walks into the room and he says, I know who, who is responsible for this. I know where to blame lies. I know where responsibility lies. Uh, and to everyone's surprise, he's like, it was me. He's like, I was, I'm, I'm the, I was the commanding officer out on the field, and if I had led in a certain way, if I had done these things, if I crossed these T's and dotted those I's, uh, this perhaps wouldn't have happened. Not only saved his job, but saved the entire morale of their team. That's extreme, what he calls extreme ownership. Deacons are the kind of men who take extreme ownership of their mistakes and correct the course. In verse 11, it says that deacons, uh, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Now, look, there's few places where um, I, I don't like the way uh, that uh, the, the uh, translation committee of the English Standard Version, the ESV that we use, um, translates a verse, and this is one of those places. All right. Um, you'll notice that some other uh, translations, rather than saying their wives, it'll say the wives or the women, right? Uh, and that's because uh, if you look at the original language uh, in this text, uh, we have good reason to believe that that term, their wives, actually refers to women deacons. All right. And so, uh, and there's another reason that we think that is because you'd also have to wonder like why Paul lists qualifications for deacons' wives here, but he didn't do that for elders' wives just a few verses ago, right? And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for Paul to think that the wives of deacon servants should be more scrutinized than the wives of pastor elder leaders. Um, so to, uh, let me just quote somebody who's a lot smarter and has like a lot more letters after his name. Uh, Tom Schreiner, New Testament scholar, uh, at Southern Seminary, 
who is uh, a, a bit of an, an expert of, uh, in, in gender roles in the church. And he would, he would along us, uh, say what we broke down over the last couple of weeks, that we do believe the office of elder uh, and pastor, preacher, primary preacher behind the pulpit, like should be reserved for only for qualified men and not for women. But here's what he says about deacons. He says, uh, it would seem that the character of wives of elders would be even more important than the wives of deacons. And thus focusing on the wives of deacons, but not, but not on the wives of elders is strange. Yet if the reference is to female deacons, we have an elegant explanation for why the wives of elders aren't mentioned, for the wives of deacons aren't included either. In other words, Paul isn't referring to wives at all, but to female deacons. All right. Furthermore, we've got places in Scripture, like uh, like in the Book of Romans, uh, where we've got uh, a woman named Phoebe, who's described as a type of deacon, who opened up her home. And Paul says, "Hey, look, go to Phoebe's house. Uh, all you ministers of gospel, go to her house. Uh, thank her for her hospitality. And hey, whatever it is that she tells you to do, like listen to her. Right? Like she's one of the primary leaders in that church over there." So here's what it says uh, about uh, women deacons. And, and, and the reason that he singles them out here is I think that uh, there are some very particular issues that um, needed to be addressed for the women deacons in uh, that church. We following so far? All right. So he says that they should be dignified. All right. So again, they should be respectable in that way. They should be not slanders. In other words, uh, they should be not a gossip. Uh, the Greek word there is diabolos. Uh, it's where we get the words for diabolical, or the Spanish uh, diablo, which means devil, right? That means she shouldn't be malicious and nefarious in her intent. She's not a backstabber. She's not a slanderer against others. She's also self-controlled. It's the same qualification that we saw for elders last week. Not easily swayed uh, by passions uh, or emotions or by wine or other uh, and things like that. She's self-controlled. Verse 12 says that deacons should each be the husband of one wife. Now we're seeing this again because last week we saw this qualification for elders. Um, this basically tells us that, hey, look, if a deacon is married, doesn't have to be, um, it's probably a good idea if, if he is, then uh, he's got to be a one-woman man. He's not cheating. He's not a flirt. He's not low-key visiting websites he shouldn't be or fantasizing about his female co-workers. Uh, and why is it that the men are dressed here and not the women? It's because men were uh, predominantly known for being the polygamists in that, in that time and era. If the Holy Spirit was inspiring scripture to be written in like this century, it might look different. But back then, this was a man problem. This was a male problem, right? They're trying to like collect collect wives like they were baseball cards, right? And, and, and they're saying like, look, you can't have that happen. You can't have that happen. You got to be a one-woman man. And he says they got to be a, not only the husband of one wife, but manage their children and their own households well. A deacon's godliness should not only extend, should not only extend to his, his closest relationships, but it should actually begin with his closest relationships in the home. Matt Smethurst, uh, a, a, a pastor who recently actually, uh, he's been working as an editor for the Gospel Coalition for a number of years, uh, but he's planning a church on the East Coast right now, and he wrote a book, uh, incidentally, last year on the Office of Deacons. Great, small little book uh, that I highly recommend. But Matt Smethurst says this. He says, if a man is married, he must love his wife and be faithful to her alone, a one-woman man. Your church can always get another deacon, but a deacon's wife can't get another husband. 
Serving one's spouse is the ultimate training ground for serving the saints. If the deacon has children, he must raise them in an atmosphere of gentle firmness and joyful love, establishing not only the beliefs, but the morale of his home. In a word, he must manage his family with deliberateness and diligence, thereby training his heart to serve the church in the same manner. The apostle could not be clearer. There is no such thing as a good deacon who is a lousy husband or dad. Being a good family man is not a bonus in considering someone for the diaconate. It's a prerequisite. Now Paul finishes in the next verse. He finishes with a promise to deacons. We see his pastoral heart in this next verse. He knows, Paul knows that deacon work is hard work. Much of it, like we said, is thankless work, unappreciated work. Deacons are often not up front, right? They usually don't serve from the stage. They're usually not seen. Uh, they often serve behind the scenes. And so he offers a promise. Paul offers a promise to keep deacons motivated to push forward. He says in verse 13, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is that faithful deacons, they receive good standing and confidence. They receive respect and courage and boldness. They receive honor from their peers and fellow church members horizontally, but they receive boldness that comes from God because you know that the work that you're doing is not in vain. It doesn't go wasted that you're going to re reap eternal rewards that will never fade. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Galatians. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The question we should be asking is, do the lead servants among us, do they feel respected? Do they know how much you appreciate the work that they do? Do your home group leaders know how much you appreciate them. The hours and prayer and the preparation that's spent to build you and your family and our kids up in the hope of the gospel. Do they know how much you appreciate their work? Shoot them a text this week. Send them an email. Call them. Man, that'll be a huge gift to them. You'll put wind in their sails as they press forward by the grace of God. Now, some of you sense a call to ministry. You see yourself as not really somebody who's, who's maybe able to get up in front of people and teach or, or to counsel somebody across the table. Uh, but you, you, you read about the responsibilities of deacons and, and, and you're thinking to yourself like, yeah, I could see, I, I feel like a, a stirring in my heart that God might be calling me to that. If you're sensing that call, I want you to ask yourself, what is it? What kind of work, what kind of specific area of need do you feel yourself called to? And how has that played out in your life so far? How has that played out in the way you serve the church so far? How has that played out in your home, in your friendships, in your character? I want to close by pointing our attention to point number three, the redeemer of deacons and the church. 
We looked at the responsibilities of deacons. We looked at the reputation of deacons. I want us to now look at the redeemer of deacons. What hope is it that deacons as lead servants have in doing their hard, continual work? It's the same hope we all have. It's the only hope we've always had. Remember, lead servants are those who assume glad responsibility for others. They take initiative for the good of those around them. Jesus took glad responsibility for us. He took initiative on our behalf. How did he take responsibility? How did he take initiative? Romans 5.8 tells us, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. You know what's just absolutely wild about the scene where Jesus, where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet that we started with? Is that included among them was a homie by the name of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. This was the man who would betray Jesus. This is the man who would turn him in to get arrested for just a few pieces of silver. And Jesus was willing to say, look, even though I know you're going to do me harm, I'm still going to serve you. I'm still going to wash your feet. If Jesus is willing to serve his enemies in this way, how much more should we who belong to him be willing to serve those that we call friends, that we call those, that those who we call brothers and sisters in this room and in this church family? I mean, I've seen so many of you do the hard work of diakonos, of serving as lead servants, doing deacon work, serving one another, looking out for the good of each other. Helping each other flourish and grow in your gifts, grow in your depth, your spiritual depth and maturity. Man, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, in the same way that Judas was Christ's enemy, we were Christ's enemies. Even while we were enemies, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He took initiative as the ultimate lead servant. And one day, one day, he's going to come back. He's going to come back to affirm his place as the lead servant by restoring and renewing all things, the hope that we all long for. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.